Chapters 34, 35 and 36 of The Golden Bough This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser Chapters 34, 35 and 36 Chapter 34 The Myth and Ritual of Attis Another of those gods whose supposed death and resurrection struck such deep roots into the faith and ritual of Western Asia is Attis. He was to Phrygia what Adonis was to Syria. Like Adonis, he appears to have been a god of vegetation, and his death and resurrection were annually mourned and rejoiced over at a festival in spring. The legends and rites of the two gods were so much alike that the ancients themselves sometimes identified them. Attis was said to have been a fair young shepherd or herdsman, beloved by Kibele, the mother of the gods, a great Asiatic goddess of fertility, who had her chief home in Phrygia. Some held that Attis was her son. His birth, like that of many other heroes, is said to have been miraculous. His mother, Nana, was a virgin, who conceived by putting a ripe almond or a pomegranate in her bosom. Indeed, in the Phrygian cosmogony, an almond figured as the father of all things, perhaps because its delicate lilac blossom is one of the first heralds of spring, appearing on the bare boughs before the leaves have opened. Such tales of virgin mothers are relics of an age of childish ignorance, when men had not yet recognised the intercourse of the sexes as the true cause of offspring. Two different accounts of the death of Attis were current. According to the one, he was killed by a boar, like Adonis. According to the other, he unmanned himself under a pine tree, and bled to death on the spot. The latter is said to have been the local story told by the people of Pessinus, a great seat of the worship of Kibele, and the whole legend of which the story forms a part is stamped with a character of rudeness and savagery that speaks strongly for its antiquity. Both tales might claim the support of custom, or rather both were probably invented to explain certain customs observed by the worshippers. The story of the self-mutilation of Attis is clearly an attempt to account for the self-mutilation of his priests, who regularly castrated themselves on entering the service of the goddess. The story of his death by the boar may have been told to explain why his worshippers, especially the people of Pessinus, abstained from eating swine. In like manner the worshippers of Adonis abstained from pork, because a boar had killed their god. After his death, Attis is said to have been changed into a pine tree. The worship of the Phrygian mother of the gods was adopted by the Romans in 204 BC, towards the close of their long struggle with Hannibal, for their drooping spirits had been opportunely cheered by a prophecy alleged to be drawn from that convenient farrago of nonsense, the Sibylline books, that the foreign invader would be driven from Italy if the great oriental goddess were brought to Rome. Accordingly, ambassadors were dispatched to her sacred city, Persinus, in Phrygia. 
the small black stone which embodied the mighty divinity, was entrusted to them and conveyed to Rome, where it was received with great respect and installed in the Temple of Victory on the Palatine Hill. It was the middle of April when the goddess arrived, and she went to work at once. For the harvest that year was such as had not been seen for many a long day, and in the very next year Hannibal and his veterans embarked for Africa. As he looked his last on the coast of Italy, fading behind him in the distance, he could not foresee that Europe, which had repelled the arms, would yet yield to the gods of the Orient. The vanguard of the conquerors had already encamped in the heart of Italy, before the rearguard of the beaten army fell sullenly back from its shores. We may conjecture, though we are not told, that the mother of the gods brought with her the worship of her youthful lover, or son, to her new home in the west. Certainly the Romans were familiar with the galley, the emasculated priests of Attis, before the close of the Republic. These unsexed beings, in their oriental costume, with little images suspended on their breasts, appear to have been a familiar sight in the streets of Rome, which they traversed in procession, carrying the image of the goddess and chanting their hymns to the music of cymbals and tambourines, flutes and horns, while the people, impressed by the fantastic show, and moved by the wild strains, flung arms to them in abundance, and buried the image and its bearers under showers of roses. A further step was taken by the Emperor Claudius, when he incorporated the Phrygian worship of the sacred tree, and with it probably the orgiastic rites of Attis, in the established religion of Rome. The great spring festival of Cybele and Attis is best known to us in the form in which it was celebrated at Rome. But, as we are informed that the Roman ceremonies were also Phrygian, we may assume that they differed hardly, if at all, from their Asiatic original. The order of the festival seems to have been as follows. On the twenty-second day of March, a pine-tree was cut in the woods and brought into the sanctuary of Cybele, where it was treated as a great divinity. The duty of carrying the sacred tree was entrusted to a guild of tree-bearers. The trunk was swathed like a corpse with woollen bands and decked with wreaths of violets, for violets were said to have sprung from the blood of Attis, as roses and anemones from the blood of Adonis, and the effigy of a young man, doubtless Attis himself, was tied to the middle of the stem. On the second day of the festival, the 23rd of March, the chief ceremony seems to have been a blowing of trumpets. The third day, the 24th of March, was known as the Day of Blood. The Archigallus, or high priest, drew blood from his arms and presented it as an offering. Nor was he alone in making this bloody sacrifice. Stirred by the wild barbaric music of clashing cymbals, rumbling drums, droning horns, and screaming flutes, the inferior clergy whirled about in the dance with waggling heads and streaming hair, until, wrapped into a frenzy of excitement and insensible to pain, they gashed their bodies with potsherds or slashed them with knives in order to bespatter the altar and the sacred tree with their flowing blood. The ghastly rite probably formed part of the mourning for Attis, and may have been intended to strengthen him for the resurrection. The Australian Aborigines cut themselves in like manner over the graves of their friends, for the purpose, perhaps, of enabling them to be born again. 
Further, we may conjecture, though we are not expressly told, that it was on the same day of blood, and for the same purpose, that the novices sacrificed their virility. Wrought up to the highest pitch of religious excitement, they dashed the severed portions of themselves against the image of the cruel goddess. These broken instruments of fertility were afterwards reverently wrapped up and buried in the earth or in subterranean chambers sacred to Kibele, where, like the offering of blood, they may have been deemed instrumental in recalling Attis to life and hastening the general resurrection of nature, which was then bursting into leaf and blossom in the vernal sunshine. Some confirmation of this conjecture is furnished by the savage story that the mother of Attis conceived by putting in her bosom a pomegranate sprung from the severed genitals of a man-monster named Agdestis, a sort of double of Attis. If there is any truth in this conjectural explanation of the custom, we can readily understand why other Asiatic goddesses of fertility were served in like manner by eunuch priests. These feminine deities required to receive from their male ministers, who personated the divine lovers, the means of discharging their beneficent functions. They had themselves to be impregnated by the life-giving energy before they could transmit it to the world. Goddesses thus ministered to by eunuch priests were the great Artemis of Ephesus and the great Syrian Astarte of Hierapolis whose sanctuary, frequented by swarms of pilgrims, and enriched by the offerings of Assyria and Babylonia, of Arabia and Phoenicia, was perhaps in the days of its glory the most popular in the East. Now the unsexed priests of this Syrian goddess resembled those of Kibele so closely that some people took them to be the same, and the mode in which they dedicated themselves to the religious life was similar. The greatest festival of the year at Hierapolis fell at the beginning of spring, when multitudes thronged to the sanctuary from Syria and the regions round about. While the flutes played, the drums beat, and the eunuch priests slashed themselves with knives, the religious excitement gradually spread like a wave among the crowd of onlookers, and many a one did that which he little thought to do when he came as a holiday spectator to the festival. For man after man, his veins throbbing with the music, his eyes fascinated by the sight of the streaming blood, flung his garments from him, leapt forth with a shout, and seizing one of the swords which stood ready for the purpose, castrated himself on the spot. Then he ran through the city, holding the bloody pieces in his hand, till he threw them into one of the houses which he passed in his mad career. The household thus honoured had to furnish him with a suit of female attire and female ornaments, which he wore for the rest of his life. When the tumult of emotion had subsided, and the man had come to himself again, the irrevocable sacrifice must often have been followed by passionate sorrow and lifelong regret. This revulsion of natural human feeling after the frenzies of a fanatical religion is powerfully depicted by Catullus in a celebrated poem. The parallel of these Syrian devotees confirms the view that in the similar worship of Kibele the sacrifice of virility took place on the day of blood at the vernal rites of the goddess, when the violets, supposed to spring from the red drops of her wounded lover, were in bloom among the pines. 
Indeed, the story that Attis unmanned himself under a pine tree was clearly devised to explain why his priests did the same beside the sacred violet-wreathed tree at his festival. At all events, we can hardly doubt that the Day of Blood witnessed the mourning for Attis over an effigy of him, which was afterwards buried. The image thus laid in the sepulchre was probably the same which had hung upon the tree. Throughout the period of mourning, the worshippers fasted from bread, nominally because Kibele had done so in her grief for the death of Attis, but really perhaps for the same reason which induced the women of Haran to abstain from eating anything ground in a mill while they wept for Tammuz. To partake of bread or flour at such a season might have been deemed a wanton profanation of the bruised and broken body of the god or the fast may possibly have been a preparation for a sacramental meal. But when night had fallen, the sorrow of the worshippers was turned to joy, for suddenly a light shone in the darkness, the tomb was opened, the god had risen from the dead, and as the priest touched the lips of the weeping mourners with balm, he softly whispered in their ears the glad tidings of salvation. The resurrection of the god was hailed by his disciples as a promise that they too would issue triumphant from the corruption of the grave. On the morrow, the twenty-fifth day of March, which was reckoned the vernal equinox, the divine resurrection was celebrated with a wild outburst of glee. At Rome, and probably elsewhere, the celebration took the form of a carnival. It was the festival of joy, Hilaria. A universal license prevailed. Every man might say and do what he pleased. People went about the streets in disguise. No dignity was too high or too sacred for the humblest citizen to assume with impunity. In the reign of Commodus, a band of conspirators thought to take advantage of the masquerade by dressing in the uniform of the imperial guard, and so, mingling with the crowd of merrymakers, to get within stabbing distance of the emperor. But the plot miscarried. Even the stern Alexander Severus used to relax so far on the joyous day as to admit a pheasant to his frugal board. The next day, the 26th of March, was given to repose, which must have been much needed after the varied excitements and fatigues of the preceding days. Finally, the Roman festival closed on the 27th of March with a procession to the brook Almo. The silver image of the goddess, with its face of jagged black stone, sat in a wagon drawn by oxen. Preceded by the nobles walking barefoot, it moved slowly, to the loud music of pipes and tambourines, out by the Porta Capena, and so down to the banks of the Almo, which flows into the Tiber just below the walls of Rome. There the high priest, robed in purple, washed the wagon, the image, and the other sacred objects in the water of the stream. On returning from their bath, the wain and the oxen were strewn with fresh spring flowers. All was mirth and gaiety. No one thought of the blood that had flowed so lately. Even the eunuch priests forgot their wounds. Such, then, appears to have been the annual solemnization of the death and resurrection of Attis in spring. But besides these public rites, his worship is known to have comprised certain secret or mystic ceremonies, which probably aimed at bringing the worshipper, and especially the novice, into closer communication with his god. 
Our information as to the nature of these mysteries and the date of their celebration is unfortunately very scanty, but they seem to have included a sacramental meal and a baptism of blood. In the sacrament, the novice became a partaker of the mysteries by eating out of a drum and drinking out of a cymbal, two instruments of music which figured prominently in the thrilling orchestra of Attis. The fast which accompanied the mourning for the dead god may perhaps have been designed to prepare the body of the communicant for the reception of the blessed sacrament by purging it of all that could defile by contact the sacred elements. In the baptism, the devotee, crowned with gold and wreathed with fillets, descended into a pit, the mouth of which was covered with a wooden grating. A bull, adorned with garlands of flowers, its forehead glittering with gold leaf, was then driven onto the grating and there stabbed to death with a consecrated spear. Its hot, reeking blood poured in torrents through the apertures and was received with devout eagerness by the worshipper on every part of his person and garments, till he emerged from the pit, drenched, dripping, and scarlet from head to foot, to receive the homage, nay, the adoration, of his fellows, as one who had been born again to eternal life, and had washed away his sins in the blood of the bull. For some time afterwards the fiction of a new birth was kept up by dieting him on milk like a newborn babe. The regeneration of the worshipper took place at the same time as the regeneration of his god, namely at the vernal equinox. At Rome the new birth and the remission of sins by the shedding of the bull's blood appear to have been carried out above all at the sanctuary of the Phrygian goddess on the Vatican Hill, at or near the spot where the great basilica of St. Peter's now stands. For many inscriptions relating to the rites were found when the church was being enlarged in 1608 or 1609. From the Vatican as a centre, this barbarous system of superstition seems to have spread to other parts of the Roman Empire. Inscriptions found in Gaul and Germany prove that provincial sanctuaries modelled their ritual on that of the Vatican. From the same source, we learn that the testicles, as well as the blood of the bull, played an important part in the ceremonies. Probably they were regarded as a powerful charm to promote fertility and hasten the new birth. Chapter 35. Attis as a God of Vegetation The original character of Attis as a tree spirit is brought out plainly by the part which the pine tree plays in his legend, his ritual and his monuments. The story that he was a human being, transformed into a pine tree, is only one of those transparent attempts at rationalising old beliefs which meet us so frequently in mythology. The bringing in of the pine tree from the woods, decked with violets and woollen bands, is like bringing in the may tree or summer tree in modern folk custom, and the effigy which was attached to the pine tree was only a duplicate representative of the tree spirit Attis. After being fastened to the tree, the effigy was kept for a year and then burnt. The same thing appears to have been sometimes done with the maypole, and in like manner the effigy of the corn spirit, made at harvest, is often preserved till it is replaced by a new effigy at next year's harvest. The original intention of such customs was no doubt to maintain the spirit of vegetation in life throughout the year. Why the Phrygians should have worshipped the pine above other trees, we can only guess. 
Perhaps the sight of its changeless, though sombre green, cresting the ridges of the high hills above the fading splendour of the autumn woods in the valleys, may have seemed to their eyes to mark it out as the seat of a diviner life, of something exempt from the sad vicissitudes of the seasons, constant and eternal as the sky which stooped to meet it. For the same reason, perhaps, ivy was sacred to Attis. At all events, we read that his eunuch priests were tattooed with a pattern of ivy leaves. Another reason for the sanctity of the pine may have been its usefulness. The cones of the stone pine contain edible nut-like seeds, which have been used as food since antiquity, and are still eaten, for example, by the poorer classes in Rome. Moreover, a wine was brewed from these seeds, and this may partly account for the orgiastic nature of the rites of Cybele, which the ancients compared to those of Dionysus. Further, pine cones were regarded as symbols or rather instruments of fertility. Hence, at the festival of the Thesmophoria, they were thrown, along with pigs and other agents or emblems of fecundity, into the sacred vaults of Demeter for the purpose of quickening the ground and the wombs of women. Like tree spirits in general, Attis was apparently thought to wield power over the fruits of the earth, or even to be identical with the corn. One of his epithets was very fruitful. He was addressed as the reaped green, or yellow, ear of corn, and the story of his sufferings, death and resurrection was interpreted as the ripe grain wounded by the reaper buried in the granary and coming to life again when it is sown in the ground. A statue of him in the Lateran Museum at Rome clearly indicates his relation to the fruits of the earth and particularly to the corn, for it represents him with a bunch of ears of corn and fruit in his hand and a wreath of pine cones, pomegranates and other fruits on his head while from the top of his Phrygian cap ears of corn are sprouting. On a stone urn which contained the ashes of an Archigallus, or high priest of Attis, the same idea is expressed in a slightly different way. The top of the urn is adorned with ears of corn carved in relief, and it is surmounted by the figure of a cock, whose tail consists of ears of corn. Cybele, in like manner, was conceived as a goddess of fertility, who could make or mar the fruits of the earth, for the people of Augusto Dunum, Autun, in Gaul, used to cart her image about in a wagon for the good of the fields and vineyards, while they danced and sang before it, and we have seen that in Italy an unusually fine harvest was attributed to the recent arrival of the Great Mother. The bathing of the image of the goddess in a river may well have been a rain-charm to ensure an abundant supply of moisture for the crops. Chapter 36. Human Representatives of Attis From inscriptions it appears that both at Pessinus and Rome the high priest of Cybele regularly bore the name of Attis. It is therefore a reasonable conjecture that he played the part of his namesake, the legendary Attis, at the annual festival. We have seen that on the day of blood he drew blood from his arms, and this may have been an imitation of the self-inflicted death of Attis under the pine-tree. It is not inconsistent with this supposition that Attis was also represented at these ceremonies by an effigy, for instances can be shown in which the divine being is first represented by a living person, and afterwards by an effigy, 
which is then burnt or otherwise destroyed. Perhaps we may go a step farther and conjecture that this mimic killing of the priest, accompanied by a real effusion of his blood, was in Phrygia, as it has been elsewhere, a substitute for a human sacrifice which in earlier times was actually offered. A reminiscence of the manner in which these old representatives of the deity were put to death is perhaps preserved in the famous story of Marcias. He was said to be a Phrygian satire of Silenus, according to others a shepherd or herdsman, who played sweetly on the flute. A friend of Cybele, he roamed the country with the disconsolate goddess to soothe her grief for the death of Attis. The composition of the mother's air, a tune played on the flute in honour of the great mother goddess, was attributed to him by the people of Celaenae in Phrygia. Vain of his skill, he challenged Apollo to a musical contest, he to play on the flute, and Apollo on the lyre. Being vanquished, Marcias was tied to a pine-tree, and flayed or cut limb from limb, either by the victorious Apollo, or by a Scythian slave. His skin was shown at Celaenae in historical times. It hung at the foot of the citadel, in a cave from which the river Marcias rushed with an impetuous and noisy tide to join the meander. So the Adonis bursts full-born from the precipices of the Lebanon. So the blue river of Ibriz leaps in a crystal jet from the red rocks of the Taurus. So the stream, which now rumbles deep underground, used to gleam for a moment on its passage from darkness to darkness in the dim light of the Corician cave. In all these copious fountains, with their glad promise of fertility and life, men of old saw the hand of God, and worshipped him beside the rushing river, with the music of its tumbling waters in their ears. At Celaenae, if we can trust tradition, the piper Marcias, hanging in his cave, had a soul for harmony even in death, for it is said that at the sound of his native Phrygian melodies the skin of the dead satyr used to thrill, but that if the musician struck up an air in praise of Apollo it remained deaf and motionless. In this Phrygian satyr, shepherd or herdsman, who enjoyed the friendship of Cybele, practised the music so characteristic of her rites, and died a violent death on her sacred tree, the pine, may we not detect a close resemblance to Attis, the favourite shepherd or herdsman of the goddess, who is himself described as a piper, is said to have perished under a pine tree, and was annually represented by an effigy hung, like Marcius, upon a pine. We may conjecture that in old days the priest who bore the name and played the part of Attis at the spring festival of Cybele was regularly hanged or otherwise slain upon the sacred tree, and that this barbarous custom was afterwards mitigated into the form in which it is known to us in later times, when the priest merely drew blood from his body under the tree, and attached an effigy instead of himself to its trunk. In the holy grove at Uppsala, men and animals were sacrificed by being hanged upon the sacred trees. The human victims, dedicated to Odin, were regularly put to death by hanging, or by a combination of hanging and stabbing, the man being strung up to a tree or a gallows, and then wounded with a spear. Hence Odin was called the Lord of the Gallows, or the God of the Hanged, and he is represented sitting under a gallows tree. Indeed, he is said to have been sacrificed to himself in the ordinary way, as we learn from the weird verses of the Havamal, 
in which the god describes how he acquired his divine power by learning the magic runes. I know that I hung on the windy tree for nine whole nights, wounded with the spear, dedicated to Odin, myself to myself. The Bagobos of Mindanao, one of the Philippine islands, used annually to sacrifice human victims for the good of the crops in a similar way. Early in December, when the constellation Orion appeared at seven o'clock in the evening, the people knew that the time had come to clear their fields for sowing and to sacrifice a slave. The sacrifice was presented to certain powerful spirits as payment for the good year which the people had enjoyed, and to ensure the favour of the spirits for the coming season. The victim was led to a great tree in the forest. There he was tied with his back to the tree, and his arms stretched high above his head, in the attitude in which ancient artists portrayed Marcias hanging on the fatal tree. While he thus hung by the arms, he was slain by a spear-thrust through his body at the level of the armpits. Afterwards the body was cut clean through the middle at the waist, and the upper part was apparently allowed to dangle for a little from the tree, while the under part wallowed in blood on the ground. The two portions were finally cast into a shallow trench beside the tree. Before this was done, anybody who wished might cut off a piece of flesh or a lock of hair from the corpse, and carry it to the grave of some relation whose body was being consumed by a ghoul. Attracted by the fresh corpse, the ghoul would leave the mouldering old body in peace. These sacrifices have been offered by men now living. In Greece, the great goddess Artemis herself appears to have been annually hanged in effigy in her sacred grove of Condylea, among the Arcadian hills, and there, accordingly, she went by the name of the Hanged One. Indeed, a trace of a similar rite may perhaps be detected even at Ephesus, the most famous of her sanctuaries, in the legend of a woman who hanged herself, and was thereupon dressed by the compassionate goddess in her own divine garb, and called by the name of Hecate. Similarly, at Melite, in Thea, a story was told of a girl named Aspalis, who hanged herself, but who appears to have been merely a form of Artemis. For after her death her body could not be found, but an image of her was discovered standing beside the image of Artemis, and the people bestowed on it the title of Heka Erge, or Far Shooter, one of the regular epithets of the goddess. Every year the virgin sacrificed a young goat to the image by hanging it, because Aspalis was said to have hanged herself. The sacrifice may have been a substitute for hanging an image or a human representative of Artemis. Again in Rhodes, the fair Helen was worshipped under the title of Helen of the Tree, because the queen of the island had caused her handmaids, disguised as furies, to string her up to a bough. That the Asiatic Greeks sacrificed animals in this fashion is proved by coins of Ilium, which represent an ox or cow hanging on a tree, and stabbed with a knife by a man who sits among the branches or on the animal's back. At Hierapolis also the victims were hung on trees before they were burnt. With these Greek and Scandinavian parallels before us, we can hardly dismiss as wholly improbable the conjecture that in Phrygia a man-god may have hung year by year on the sacred but fatal tree. End of chapter 36